Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more, for the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. But the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, would that were true in the words of that psalm that we would be humbled to the dust, because it is impossible truly to receive anything of the Lord's, and particularly regarding something to, of heaven, um, if we do not come with the approach of humility. If we think that heaven is something that we have earned, if we think that heaven is something that comes naturally, that we can just walk into, then of course we're not going to understand the greatness of the gift. But rather in humility we come to see what the Lord has given. And so we come to this final section of Revelation chapter 7. Last time we considered this final finished work of Christ as innumerable company of saints bought by his blood the fruit of that great work of redemption that is the center of all history 
And this morning we consider then that which lies in store for these blessed people of the Lord, these blood-bought saints, the happiness of heaven. Happiness of heaven, as it is explained in these last three verses of chapter, chapter 7, would seem to be these three things. They dwell in the temple of God, they are shepherded by the Lamb, and God himself will wipe away every tear. They're dwelling places with God in his temple. Specifically, they're shepherded by the Lamb. And God will be their own comforter, the giver of every good thing and the preventer of everything that is sad. And here I think we can see why it was helpful to go through the Gospel of John first, because this is where all the things that were promised in the Gospel of John come true. Every one of those promises sometimes extending to the the whole length of a chapter or more in these great themes of John, the great things that Jesus identifies himself to be like the good shepherd, they come true here. Perhaps you remember Peter's question at the end of John chapter 13, where are you going and why can't I follow you? And you remember sadly his foolish response to that and the sad aftermath. Well, that wasn't the end of it. Chapter 14, Jesus has the fuller, the final answer to that. I go, you want to know where I'm going, Peter? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that was no throwaway line. The whole work of redemption, the whole center of everything that God has been doing is to prepare a place where God dwells with his people. They will dwell with him in that temple. That was no easy work. As we saw last time, it meant that sinners, they were going to have to be washed in the blood of the sinless Lamb of God. And that work carried on from that point in the building up of the church and bringing people to salvation. God is greatly glorified by all these things. But that great answer to Peter's question is here. I go to prepare a place, and one day that place will be finished. Here also is where the Good Shepherd discourse in John 10 is, in some ways, the center of the Gospel of John. One of my favorites of all biblical passages comes true in all of its fullness. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lives his life for the sheep. Why? Why is this giving of the... In some sense, in this limited way, and please stay with me on this, in this manner, the work of the atonement is actually subordinate to some greater end. Yes, the cross is the center of it all. But the cross has a purpose. It's leading somewhere. It's producing something. It's bringing something. It's enabling Christ to do that which he promised to do, to be our good shepherd. It is in that way a means to an end, and the end is here in Revelation chapter 7, where he says that the Lamb himself will shepherd his people and lead them to every good thing. So fulfillment of John 10, 16, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And here is where the promises of John 16 come true. You remember that? Maybe back in 
John 13, he doesn't quite get it, but already it's extremely uncomfortable, the idea of the Lord leaving and them not being able to follow, at least not immediately, but then even worse, they come to the fullness of what is, what is happening. And in John 16, 20, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's speaking about his death. And they put me to death. When they succeed in that which they've been seeking to do these several years, the world is going to rejoice. But you're going to weep. You will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned to joy. And here is where that comes true. The Lord, at long last, wipes away every tear from his people. The happiness of heaven, in these three points. They dwell in the temple of God. They are shepherded by the Lamb. And God himself will wipe away every tear. First point is that they dwell in the temple of God. As we read in verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Therefore they are before the throne of God. There is a reason for that. It falls on to what we saw last time. Why are they before the throne of God? Well, because unlike the sinners, unlike the unbelieving people of this earth, who know they're about to face the wrath of Almighty God and they desire among all other things to be hidden Someone hide us from the face of the Lamb in his wrath. Unlike them, these have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, no sin on them to be the recipients of God's wrath. They are clean. They haven't done it themselves, but they are clean. And they, therefore, are before the throne of God. That is what has brought them. That was the great accomplishment of the atonement to secure entrance for God's people to be with him. It was immensely costly, but again a means to an end. It was not a purposeless demonstration. It was necessary in order that sinful people might be brought into the dwelling place of Almighty Holy God. That is what happened. And that is what we find. Therefore they are before the throne of God, having been washed in the blood. And therefore, they serve him day and night. And for worldly people, that doesn't seem like much of the happiness of heaven at all. But for God's people, you and I know that things are much different. You and I know that we are most happy, most joyful when we are actually serving God in fullness and in joy. You and I know that our greatest frustration on this earth is that we never seem to quite be able to do it. Never are we able quite to put together two days in a row of really serving the Lord. And here the great promise for us is that we will serve him night and day without any interruption, without any pause, without any stop for all of eternity. Night and day. Now not because there is actually night. We know that there will be no more night. Not because we'll sleep. You see, the only reason we sleep is because we are 
tired on this earth in our imperfections. None of us would choose to to spend how many ever hours in bed doing nothing if we weren't tired and if we didn't desperately need that sleep. Well, in heaven that won't be the case. Rather, we won't be interrupted in the thing that we want to do, which is to serve God all the time. And that service is in his temple. And that's really the center of this verse. You'll serve him day and night in his temple, the dwelling place of God. We know that Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that, may I, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The great desire to be in the presence of of the Lord. So we're not just desiring to serve him for no end. The service is all about the presence. The service is being in the presence of the living God. And we want to be in his temple. Our great desire is to do that. Now what is his temple? Well, sometimes people define temple in simplistic ways as I just mentioned. It's just simply the dwelling place of God and that's true enough. Certainly one way to to start in our definition, but it doesn't quite get us to where we need to go because God does not need a dwelling place for himself. He doesn't have a body like men. He's a spiritual being. There's no need for him to have a dwelling place just for himself. The only reason he has ever made some particular physical location, dwelling place, is in order to meet with his people. Take, for instance, the burning bush. The burning bush was not a very large structure. If we're looking for a church building, it wouldn't be good enough. It was only a location on earth by which he could meet with one man, and that was Moses. And then later on, as we go through this history of redemption, the next thing we have is the pillar of fire and of smoke, that is, the marking place of God, an indication that God is among the nation of Israel and that he leads them and they follow. And that's a wonderful thing. But it wasn't exactly a place to meet with all the people of God, was it? We don't get that until we get to the tabernacle of meeting. And there in the tabernacle of meeting, at long last, you have the particular construction of a place, not for the benefit of God, but for the benefit of his people, that they might truly meet with him. And we find that in greater measure in the temple, this structure, where a place where God meets with his people. Now, of course, the only problem with that meeting place was that there are some dividing lines. There was the, the outer court for the Gentiles, of which if you were not of the right ethnic origin, if you were not clean, if you're not the rest of those things, you couldn't go any further. And then inside, there's a place where clean Israelite men could be. But even there, there's this wall, this curtain, this separation between there and the Holy of Holies. There's layers of separation, and four really, actually, layers of separation there. But that won't be there in heaven. He who sits upon the throne will dwell among them. You notice that idea. He who sits upon the throne will dwell, will live among them. You don't have at all the sense then of this 
great separation between the one who sits upon the throne and the people who are there before him, but of one who is living among them and with him. And all those dividing places will be knocked down. All those things that keep us. You know, the sin that keeps us from seeing what we ought to see, because we should. We should be able to open this Bible and we should be able to see Christ. When I preach, as it is told me here, sir, we would see Jesus, I ought to be able to show him to you and you ought to be able to see him. You know what's keeping us from that in its fullness? Our sin. That's what's clouding our vision. And we can't quite see him as we ought to. But there that will not be the case. We'll see him as he truly is. And there'll be no sin on us to keep us from seeing. And even, even that that state of humility in Christ, a sinless state of humility, but a state of humility nonetheless that kept the disciples from seeing God as he, he fully was in the man Christ Jesus, with the one exception of the transfiguration, of course. Well, that's gone too. All that's left is pure, unmitigated, unspoiled, uninterrupted fellowship, communion, and friendship with God forever. The dwelling place of God has become with man, his people in heaven. You know, it's not, again, we have to in some way relate this to what we know, but is not friendship one of the things that even secular people celebrate? I think rightly so. We, we sort of wince when they define happiness purely in terms of material goods or things that could be bought at the mall, something like that. But friendship, that's a good thing. It's truly a joyful thing to be in the presence of friends who are good, who are themselves lovely in various ways, and who love us. It's a wonderful thing. That's what we get in heaven. This is the fulfillment, not just of the general idea of him living with us, but in John fifteen fifteen, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. There is a wonderful element of the friendship of Jesus Christ. When we consider what lies ahead for us in heaven, we have to consider it must be a little bit better than what the disciples themselves enjoyed. The disciples on this earth, in all their limitations, at least had face-to-face fellowship and friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we not at least have that in heaven? I think we'll have it and much more so. And that's the joy of heaven then, to dwell forever in the place created for and consisting of the redeemed people of God so that we might enjoy the friendship with Christ. Well, secondly, the, the joy of heaven consists in being shepherded by the Lamb. You see in verse 16, they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. Now, this is certainly true physically. If the Lord is going to go to the trouble of giving us resurrection bodies, if we remain incomplete as disembodied souls waiting for the time, again, there's an intermediate state. If we are to die today as Christians, uh, our souls go to heaven. Our bodies remain on the, in the ground until the resurrection. But one day, then at the end of time, We receive back our bodies, but made gloriously perfect. And if the Lord's going to go to all that trouble of giving us resurrection bodies, we can be sure he's going to take care of them. 
And indeed, the whole point of giving us bodies is so that the, the, the happiness of heaven can be maximized in both body and soul. God can make us happy and joyful in our souls, but he can even do more when we have bodies once again. Of course, the other side of that is what happens in hell. He can make men miserable in their souls, and that can be added to when they have bodies once again. But for us, again, the point is that we have resurrection bodies in order to maximize our joy and the happiness of heaven. And these bodies are going to be taken care of. Whatever, whatever requirements that they might have will certainly be met. Now, I think that our bodies will certainly no longer require things like water and food for life. If we don't have them, that we're going to die. There's no danger of us dying in heaven. There's no death. By definition, without sin, there is no death. So we could not possibly be in danger of dying. And therefore, the warning signs that we have here... What kind of warning lights? I'm thirsty, you need to drink or you'll die. I'm hungry, you need to eat or you'll die. Those things have no purpose in heaven. So there will be, in that sense, no hunger nor thirst. But, moreover, whatever remaining desire for the enjoyment of these things that we have in fellowship with one another, remember, that's what Jesus did. Didn't really need to eat. But he sat down and had breakfast with the disciples. Why? To show him something about himself and to have fellowship with his beloved disciples. Well, no doubt, that is the sort of thing that carries on in heaven. And whatever requirement, whatever desire that we have for these things will be abundantly and continually supplied in heaven. But far more so spiritually. The Lord was never happy with his people when we just, when, whenever they saw him just as a source of food. You remember in the Old Testament, in the desert that the people were treating the Lord in this way. And Deuteronomy 8.3 said, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know, what? That man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And likewise, after Jesus fed the 5,000, and the people were following only because they wanted free food. You remember that in John 6, right? Jesus responds, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because that's more important. Yes, we need to have physical food, but it's more important the word of life, the bread of life, which Jesus Christ says he is. And what is it? Well, in verse 35 of John chapter 6, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see how these things come to fulfillment here in Revelation chapter 7? And what he means by that, hunger and thirst, what he means by that particularly is explained even in John chapter 6. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. That means he laid down his life. That means that his body was broken on the cross in order that we might live. And those who partake of his body spiritually will never die. They will have eternal life. And something that will have the joy, Lord willing, of seeing and experiencing 
in the Lord's Supper this, this evening. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ given for us. Well, there'll be no more sun or heat. Now, physically, it's perhaps hard for us living where we do to think of the sun and heat as being a problem, but it is for most of the world's population. And we think maybe of Jonah's vine. Remember the sun scorching in its heat and how thankful he was that the Lord had provided a vine to shade him just a little while. It's a wonderful thing to have shade in that great heat. But of course, intense heat is going to be far more for a problem for the whole earth at the end of the world, as we see in numerous places in Revelation, as, as in, there's a process of conflagration of the entire world and the whole world being destroyed by fire. And then much more so then with the unbelievers in hell as they're, they're thrown into the, the lake of fire ultimately. The idea then of being shielded from all this dangerous and painful heat by the, the lamb bringing them in places where they'll have wonderful shade is a great thought. And we see, of course, in heaven there's no sun at all. There's no possibility of being scorched, no matter what the weather. Because in Revelation twenty-one twenty-three, which is the parallel passage to Revelation 7, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated. The lamb is its light. And so... We are shielded from this harmful heat. But the main thing, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This chapter is about what Christ does. The main thing is that these things don't happen in isolation. It's not like some sort of machine. There's, there's, not, a, there's not a water machine. There's not a food machine. There's not a shade machine. It is rather that the, the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, does these things. They happen because of the leadership and the shepherding of the Lamb of God. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. You understand that the most wonderful place on earth, a place that would otherwise be paradise, can be made absolutely miserable by bad leadership. And likewise, even a miserable place can be made tolerable, if not pleasant, by good leadership. And here we have that par excellence. We have the Lamb of God leading us and bringing us to the places that are good. And more so, it's already the most wonderful place in the universe. So we have the most wonderful place with the most perfect, wonderful leadership being made supremely happy and joyful, lacking no good thing and having an abundance of every good thing. As he's the good shepherd. That's the fulfillment. Jesus said he was the good shepherd. We ought to believe he's the good shepherd. And we're soon enough going to find out he's the good shepherd in all the fullness. As if we don't already know. Truly in this life we already know. We already experience his wonderful shepherding. But more so in heaven. Prophesied for a long time. Psalm 23. I needn't repeat it to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean? Young people who may not understand, sometimes I used to think, so does that mean I don't want him? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that I don't fall into want. It means that there's nothing that I lack. There's not a single thing that I want that is not fulfilled in Christ. There's no leftover need at all. 
Because this good shepherd in all of his wisdom and all of his power leads us to living fountains of waters. The highlight of his ministrations, the highlight of the good thing that he gives to them is to lead them to these fountains of living water. And you know, can you guess? That's also a fulfillment of what we find in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. You remember the Samaritan woman? And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's what we get in Jesus Christ. That's what the good shepherd is able to give. Other shepherds, they have to look around and find a good place for water. The great thing about the good shepherd is he is the source of all that is good. The source of this living water, the source of life. Water is required for all life, isn't it? Without water, we die. Well, spiritually, without the living water that Christ gives to his people, there's no life in us. He's the source of that life, and that is what the good shepherd gives to us in heaven evermore. Well, thirdly and finally, he will wipe away every tear. It says in verse 17, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I want us to understand that Jesus Christ knows what it is to weep. This is not a a meaningless sort of statement. You, You cannot look at this and say, that he, he interacts with us as a sort of, get, get those tears off your face. He knows what it is. In Luke 19.41, you remember that he cried over Jerusalem. As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Tears flowed from those eyes. Those eyes in this incarnate God-man, he's still there in heaven now and will be with him soon enough. Those eyes that we look at, we can be sure that there have been tears in those very eyes. Or again in John eleven thirty five, after the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Or in Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus Christ knows what it is to weep. He even knows what it's like to weep to God the Father. He knows what it's like and he knows our tears. That's the other thing that we can be absolutely certain of. He is not ignorant of the situation of his people. He is not ignorant of our own tears. Now this, uh, the, the list of scriptures here, we could go on and on, but just as a brief sampling In Job 16, my friends scorn me, my eyes pour out tears to God. You remember Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. He declares, I have seen them. Or in Psalm 58, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And that is a good question. Are they not in your book? You know why it's a good question? What do all those things in every other scripture have in common? Who is the author? Who wrote these words? Who inspired these words to be written down? God himself. He wrote these words. He knows about our tears. They come as no surprise to him. Each and every last tear shed by his people in all of history, they are in his book. 
They are known to him, and they are not forgotten. And when he says then that he's going to wipe them away, we have to understand that that means that all the sources of the pain that brought us to those tears will be undone, will be reversed, will be brought on his head in heaven. You see, we're not speaking of a momentary that there was some we had there was something that made us sad in the last five minutes before the earth ended, and he's going to wipe away those tears. No, he's going to wipe away all of the tears that have ever been in his people. He's promised to do that. Remember in Isaiah twenty five, when we were there in Isaiah. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said in that day, in verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, the thing is, there will be no more death in heaven. We, we had a sermon on this at some point. But the idea is that all, it's not just the momentary comfort, but all the sources, the possible sources of pain, the possible sources of things that would bring us to tears are gone, forever gone in heaven. He's promised to do it. He has the power to do it in getting rid of all these things, and we know that we will do it. We see again a sort of flash forward to the, the future. Um, Jesus promises this in John sixteen twenty, which I'll just, I might as well just read now. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. Do you see how that is? Yes, there's a time of anguish in this world. But the things that are then given are so overwhelmingly good and joyful that all that has come before is forgotten. Therefore you now have sorrow. And it is a sad thing, is it not? Imagine being one of the disciples. Imagine, as we are today, seeing our Lord tortured and crucified and dying. A sad thing indeed. No sadder could be imagined. And they were right in that sense to weep. You will have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you'll ask me nothing. Well, that's what we have in Revelation 7. That's what we have here. When it says the Lord will wipe away every tear. It is not just the mere comfort of a passing moment. Although that's enough, by the way. That's an amazing thought. As what is being pictured here is a very intimate thing. Think about it. Who gets to wipe away your tears here? Is it everyone? Or is it only your close family? Your parents? Your very, very closest friends, perhaps? And the thought, an amazing thought. Here it is God taking this interest in us, doing this thing that is so intimate. The act of a loving father. 
And he really is that. It would be a mistake to imagine that he is like a father in some ways, but perhaps not as personal, not as real, not as intimate. Sometimes we think that he's like a father, which is good. But he's more than that. He excels the best of human fathers in every respect. He is far more personal, far more real, far more fatherly and caring in every sort of way that you can imagine. So it is a wonderful thing that we imagine this wonderful heavenly father wiping away our tears. But it is not just the momentary comfort. It is the everlasting comfort of these things. The everlasting reversal for God's people of the situations. You see, no more death, far from it. It's eternal life in heaven. No more hunger and thirst, far from it. It's eternal and everlasting, abundant supply of the very best of living water and of Christ himself. All the possible sources of sadness have been abolished. The absence of anything that would make us sad. No more death, no more sorrow, no more cry, no more pain. All gone forever. You know, sometimes I think it's hard for us even to enjoy the good things in this world. You know what I mean? When I say that a, a holiday, for instance... You're on holiday, and it's wonderful. But you know it's going to come to an end. And therefore, it's hard for us to enjoy it in its fullness because there's almost a sorrow. If you build it up too far, then you know it's only going to go down at the end. But that even won't be there in heaven. You know from the very beginning that it'll never, ever, ever come to an end. And therefore, all that joy, all that happiness is utterly maximized. God wipes away our tears, and he does what it takes in every regard to ensure that they can never come back. Now, in some sense, it seems an application is superfluous. But, of course, we have to think how these things apply. And for the Christian, we ought to take comfort in the Good Shepherd. Those who have put our faith in Christ, we must take our comfort in this good shepherd because there is nothing else there. There is nothing beyond Christ. Our mistake is to think that there is. Whenever we try to substitute some of the things that maybe worked for us in our past lives or that we struggle with as Christians, things that other people find fulfillment and happiness and joy in, at least for a while, These things ultimately are empty. We find our fullness, we find our joy, we find our happiness in Christ, or we don't find it at all. Because everything else is susceptible to all those problems that I said that will ultimately lead you to tears. The very things that are going to make you happy one day are going to make you sad the next, except for Christ Jesus. And we must take comfort then in this good shepherd. You have a good shepherd. I cannot say that tomorrow will be brighter than today in your circumstances. Because that wasn't the case with the Lord. It actually seemed to get worse for him over time, his earthly ministry. That was not the case with Paul. It seemed to get worse with him as well. You know from the first day that I came in Asia, what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. Well, that was the good part of his ministry. And then things like shipwreck, and then things like imprisonment, and then things like martyrdom. 
We cannot say that Paul's life was going to get better and brighter tomorrow in that way. But one thing that could be said for him, one thing that can be said for us is that we have a good shepherd. Now sometimes he may lead us in places where there will be tears. As he himself was led. But know that he loves the sheep and would do and did do absolutely anything for them to secure their ultimate happiness. Take comfort in this good shepherd. Secondly, we ought to be patient. We are very impatient. But we need to know, and maybe there's an element of truth in it. it would, there would be something wrong with us if we were overly patient of things. If we were completely at home with everything in this life, what is wrong with us? If we were at home completely with everything, every aspect of our own sin, for instance. Surely we should be impatient about that. But in the other sense, in the more important sense, we certainly need to be patient We have this short course in front of us yet to walk in this veil of tears. But our thoughts, our consideration, what is weighted in that great equation of to say, is it worth it? In our own mentality, thinking about how, is it it well with my soul or not? Which is a great question that we so ask. In that great equation, is it well with my soul? We must remember what lies ahead. We must think on heaven. The great value of any sermon on heaven is to enable us to be patient in this life. People speak of, of Christianity as if it were an opiate for the masses, as if um, we, should all, we should forget entirely about the things in this earth in, in order... Well, you know what? There's a great grain of truth in that. Okay? And I didn't make it up. And Christian theologians didn't make it up. This is in the Bible. The purpose of Revelation, besides showing us Jesus Christ, which of course is the ultimate of all of it, is for suffering people, suffering through their own sin and their own imperfections and the persecutions of those around them, and in want and need in various ways, are given comfort and are enabled thereby to be patient in all these trials and tribulations. And if you're not thinking on these things... You have greatly handicapped yourself. You have caused yourself spiritual problems that you need not have. Know that you have a comforter in heaven. He knows about your tears. He sees your tears. And he promises that the day is coming when he will wipe every one of them away. Never more to return. So we must be patient in this veil of tears. Thirdly and finally, I would say that the great application is for those who are not yet believers. Speak to the children and to the young people and maybe to some others. It is a a strange thing that the church in this day imagines that all those who come, even all those who are members, are in fact believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That would amuse a Puritan. Well, The thing is, if you preach a sermon on hell, it should get you to repent of your sins. That's that's the idea. And if there's a sermon on heaven, it should also 
want you, get you to greatly desire this thing that's in front of you. That's the thing, you see. In the Lord's ministry to people, in his evangelism, he warned us about hell and said you should flee the wrath to come. He says, do anything you can possibly do to avoid this terrible fate. It should be avoided at all costs. And I've given you a way to avoid it. And on the other hand, he says, let me tell you how wonderful it is. Let me tell you about the place that I prepare. Let me tell you about the wedding feast that I'm inviting you to. And you'd better receive it. You'd better receive this wonderful invitation for both of those reasons. And what it says in Luke 6.25 in the Sermon on the Mount, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. He's reminding that there will become a reversal of these things. Now, I said that there's no weeping in heaven, but we are reminded that just by that contrast that there is weeping in hell. And the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there won't be anyone there in hell to wipe away your tears. There's no one there to say everything is okay because everything isn't. And it never will be. Just more sorrow and more tears. Let me now read the other half of this section in John chapter 4. You remember in verse 11, John 4:11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Great incentive for you is Jesus Christ in his source of everlasting life and the heaven that he promises to his people. And we ought to put our faith in him. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for not rightly taking in your word, for not receiving in, in faith and enjoy all the things that you have promised, all the things that you have said, for losing sight even of these things perhaps that we believed. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to see clearly Jesus Christ and to see the things that are portrayed so wonderfully for us in this your word. That, Lord, you would enable us to carry on in this veil of tears, knowing the great and perfect and everlasting comfort that awaits us in heaven. Help us, Lord, to think much and to revel in these things. And, Lord, for those of us who have not yet put our faith in Christ, who have not received this wonderful gift through faith, we pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes, that you would do the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth, and grant that they too might drink of the fountains of living water springing up to everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.